Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Red Justice Project. I'm Brittany Hunt. And I'm Chelsea Locklear, and we are members of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina. The goal of our podcast is to bring awareness to the many, many cases of missing and murdered Indigenous people in North America and the way we are erased in American media. And with that, let's get started. Today, our episode takes us back to 1998. On a winter morning in January, when five-year-old Brittany Locklear, a member of the Lumbee tribe, vanished while waiting for her school bus. For the past 22 years, Brittany's family has sought answers as to why their baby. Why Brittany? This is the Red Justice Project. Brittany lived in Rayford, North Carolina in 1998. Rayford is about a 20-minute drive from where the both of us grew up. And this story stuck with me because Brittany was only a couple of years younger than both me and Chelsea were at the time. And as a little Lumbee girl, a story like this completely rocked our community and my own personal view of safety. And when I spoke with my daddy about this case, he actually uh, talked about how parents became extra cautious after Brittany was taken. Yeah, it's kind of ironic that for our first episode, we are talking about someone close to our age at the time and who shares your first name, Brittany, and my last name, Locklear. I can remember seeing her pictures on the local news in her name and just being in awe that someone hurt this little girl who could have been one of my schoolmates. I mean, it could have been any one of us. It was truly the first time as an eight-year-old Lumbee girl that I felt this kind of danger in our sprawling but tight-knit community. Which, speaking of our community, Brittany, do you want to give a little detail about our tribal community for those not familiar with the area? Yeah, so Hope County is one of the four counties located within Lumbee Tribal Territory in southeastern North Carolina. And the Lumbee Tribe is the largest tribe east of the Mississippi River and the ninth largest tribe in the nation. Hope County's population at the time was about 11% Native. And also, a lot of our listeners might not be aware of this, but Native people from the southeastern U.S., but especially Lumbee people, are very Southern. I think people always imagine Native people as being out West or having this very kind of stoic view of what Native identity is. But Native people are as diverse as a Southerner from a Northerner or as a Californian from a Carolinian. So just keep that in mind as you're listening. Yeah, that's a really good point you make, Brittany. You'll probably hear what you consider a Southern accent from both Brittany and I, but to us, we are speaking with a Lumbee dialect. That helps us recognize other Lumbees, and it's one if you go back and listen to interviews with Brittany's family, in this case, you can hear directly. Um, If you haven't listened to the podcast, The Fall Line, they actually interview Brittany's mom, Connie, and you can hear her distinct accent. And we actually recommend just listening to the episode for the additional details that her mama provides about the case. It's really informative. Yeah, I really like listening to that episode and just hearing kind of the firsthand experience from her mama. Um, And also, she just gives a lot of insights that uh, a lot of the news articles don't provide. So I'd recommend that as well. Okay, before we get into details about the case, I just want to share a little about Brittany. At the time, she was a kindergartner at West Hope Elementary School, which we mentioned was in Rayford. The assistant principal at the time, Irish Pickett, noted how Brittany hugged everyone she saw. She was described as a very friendly, loving, and warm child. If you follow us on our social media accounts, or if you go to our website, we'll actually have pictures 
posted of what five-year-old Brittany looked like. In the main picture we are using, I'm pretty sure my cousins and I had the same exact pink dress with white lace. It was an iconic dress in our part of the world in the mid-90s. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I had the exact same dress, too. Lumbee mamas are extra like that, and we love it. Um, Brittany had sandy, blondish-brown hair and brown eyes, and she was completely adorable. At her school, they called her Little Brittany because she was so tiny. She was just three feet tall and 35 pounds, so she was an itty-bitty little thing. Her sister, Brianna, who we messaged for this episode, described her as outgoing and loved by everyone. Her mom, Connie, also described her as outgoing and said she loved going to church. Also, her mom said that Brittany was a very atypical child. She was walking and talking before she even turned one. Connie also said that Brittany had dreams from a young age of being a pilot. Like most five-year-olds in the 90s, myself included, she loved Barney. She also loved banana sandwiches and drinking buttermilk, which is something her stepdad and grandfather got her into. I don't know about you, Brittany, but that does not sound very appetizing. But I think it's cute she was able to share that with them. Yeah, no, I don't know if I can throw back some buttermilk, but I know some of my family can. But on the morning of January 7th, 1998, Brittany and her mom were waiting outside of their home for Brittany's school bus. And it's important to note that this is a pretty rural area, so this is not a subdivision or a highly populated place. So there are probably only a few people outside, especially that early in the morning. Connie says that she woke up at around 6.30 to get Brittany dressed for school, and actually that day it was kind of a warm winter morning. According to the Farmer's Almanac, it was about 68 degrees that morning, and the average temperature that day was 70 degrees. So kind of an odd winter morning in North Carolina, but our weather is kind of off the chain. So, And also, it looks like the sun rose that morning at about 7.30 a.m., and they were waiting for the bus at 7, so light had probably just started to simmer on the horizon, but I'm sure the morning was pretty dim altogether. That day, Brittany was wearing a softball t-shirt, denim overalls, tennis shoes, a green hair tie, and most importantly, a little red riding hood coat, which sounds like the most perfect outfit ever for a five-year-old, to be honest. That morning, Brittany, Connie, and and Brittany's little sister we mentioned, Brianna, who was 18 months old at the time, headed out to the road to wait for the bus. Connie says that while they were waiting, she realized she needed to use the restroom. As a reminder, this is a pretty rural area, and they lived on a dirt road about a tenth of a mile off Ganey Road, which was the main road where the bus would stop. With baby Brianna on her hip, Connie left to go back inside for just a few minutes, and that decision... And those few minutes would change their lives forever. Little did she know that someone was lurking. And when she made her way back outside, Brittany was gone. At first, Connie assumed the bus had come and that Brittany was on her way to school. It wasn't until her neighbor Keith Butler knocked on her door and told her that his wife Rose saw Brittany being abducted. She told Connie that a white male in a brown or tan truck flew around the curve, stopped in front of Brittany, got out of the truck and picked her up, and then took off quickly. Some say the truck had a light rack on top. Other reports noted that he could have been a lighter-skinned Native American male. Eyewitnesses also said that she didn't seem to resist the man. Also, several children who lived along the country road actually witnessed Brittany being taken, which is just crazy to me. I can imagine that at that point her mom was probably in shock and disbelief and desperately did not want to believe what her neighbor told her. 
So she called her father-in-law who lived nearby and they both drove to Brittany's school hoping to confirm that her daughter had arrived at the school. The bus pulled up sometime after they did. And as they watched the children file out one by one, there was just one student not among them. Brittany. I can't even imagine how her mom felt at that point. Um, um, so realizing she was not on the bus, Connie went to the sheriff's office immediately with her husband, Brittany's stepfather, to report Brittany missing and tell them what her neighbor had witnessed, that she saw a white or light-skinned male in a brown truck take Brittany. Remember, this was 1998, so that Amber Alert system we are accustomed to seeing today wouldn't go into effect until the early 2000s in North Carolina. After hearing the report, Connie said law enforcement immediately released her image across their network. Brittany, do you want to go into details about what happened next? Yes, so while operating this search for the truck, police also mobilized a search party immediately by 8.30 in the morning with over 500 people, including soldiers from the nearby Army base Fort Bragg. Within a few hours, the search intensified. Search dogs soon found her backpack. It was actually found before her mother ever left the sheriff's office. In a different area close by, her shoes and overalls were also found, but no Brittany. These items were found very close to where she was last seen waiting for the bus, about two miles from her home. I think at this point with finding the backpack, her mama still held out hope that someone had just taken her temporarily and that she would be found. And these were obviously very bad signs, especially with her clothes being taken, but it could not compare for what they would find next. The next day after her abduction, Brittany's naked body was found in a drainage ditch just three miles from her home. She had been raped and drowned, most likely in the drainage ditch where she was found. Reports say it would not have been easy for someone unfamiliar with the area to access and place her there. And we're not going to go into more details of the crime scene than this. Uh, even though we didn't know Brittany personally, it's hard to imagine finding a small five-year-old in that way. It's unclear from the reports who found Brittany, whether it was a volunteer or someone from law enforcement. But finding her five-year-old body laying in a ditch had to be heart-shattering for the volunteers, police, and especially her family. I imagine that seeing a child like that would be traumatizing to the spirit. A few days later, Brittany's setting up and funeral were held in the county. There were a few places big enough to hold the crowd that they expected to attend, but the J.W. Turlington School was the biggest in the county, so it was held there. More than 6,000 people came to remember, honor, and mourn for her. Her kindergarten classmates served as pallbearers, and when I read that, I could just barely process it. Murder should never happen to anyone, but to imagine their little lives touched by it so early, having this knowledge of evil hit so closely to them, that's just hard for me to stomach. It truly is, and it changed the whole trajectory of the case. Finding Brittany's body shifted the investigation from kidnapping to murder. Of course, Brittany's family were the initial folks to be investigated, Connie was given a polygraph test just three days after burying Brittany, as well as her husband and father-in-law. Her family members were quickly ruled out using DNA evidence as well as polygraph testing, including Brittany's estranged father who lived in Pembroke, North Carolina. Just a couple days after her body was found, 
the Hope County Sheriff, Wayne Bird, announced that anyone with a brown truck would be stopped and questioned. Interviews with Connie talk about how frustrated this made her feel. She says the sheriff announced on television that anyone going through Ganey Road in a brown truck would be stopped. Which, I mean, I'm totally baffled as to why on earth he would do this. Because if I had taken Brittany, I would just make sure not to go through there. Also, even if I hadn't taken her, but I had a brown truck, I would also make sure not to go through there so I wouldn't be stopped. So this seems like a major misstep to me for him to announce that information on TV. Oh, I totally agree with you, Brittany. It's so frustrating and it makes no sense. Um, I think it's one of the many missteps in this case. But they pulled over three people driving brown trucks, um, even with the announcement. So one person they even took to the station and questioned for over six hours. One of the trucks was actually right across the street from Brittany's home. But none of these leads panned out and everyone was released. They actually even investigated someone driving a brown truck in South Carolina, but that lead did not pan out either. Police search efforts for her killer continued for weeks with no real leads other than the few eyewitness accounts of a white or light-skinned male in a tan or brown truck. And you know, also, just another quick frustrating aspect about this case is the fixation on the brown truck. So later on, police actually say that they are not sure the truck was brown or tan. They think that maybe the eyewitness has got it wrong, or maybe since it was dim that morning, they didn't see it correctly. But just think about how hyper-focused they were on this brown truck. I mean, brown trucks aren't really that common, so I'm sure they thought that that would help narrow things a lot. But if it wasn't even brown, then that doesn't help at all. That means that they probably let dozens of trucks go by unnoticed whose drivers could have been Britney's killer. And also, they were at first looking for a white man, but then later said that the man could have been a light-skinned native or black man, which basically means it could have been almost any man driving any truck. It really is crazy to think that the killer could have been through any of their roadblocks or even been a part of the search party, considering the location where Brittany was found. I mean, they really don't know if it was a brown truck, and they're not even sure if it was a white or light-skinned male. Um... The good news is that police were actually able to take a DNA sample from the semen found on her body, but when they ran it through the system, there was no match. Additionally, there was a child who said that they were approached by a man days before Brittany was murdered, but when another child showed up, the man sped off. Police also believe that whoever killed Brittany would have had to have knowledge of the county and the road Brittany was taken from, as it was not a busy road, nor was the road where Brittany's body was found. Um, and Brittany, you and I are from that area, so we kind of know how rural it is and how hard it would be to have any knowledge if you're not from the area. So I definitely agree with the police on that aspect of the case. Right. Um, it seems unlikely that a passerby or a stranger could have done this. And also, the person who did it would likely have had to know the bus schedule as well if this was a planned attack, which, you know, once again, because we don't know who it was, we're not sure of. And beyond that, investigators received over 1,600 tips. One detective named Jay Tilly later noted that the police department simply did not have the resources nor the manpower to effectively manage all of the tips that came in. He said that they wrote down notes on paper and managed some via computer, but admitted that some tips fell through the cracks and were not explored. Which to me is one of the more frustrating aspects of this case. One of those tips could totally have led them to Brittany's murderer. However, authorities were so desperate to try to find a lead that they even interviewed every registered child molester within a 50-mile radius of Brittany's home. 
The FBI, though, did get called in pretty quickly on this case, and they actually assembled a kind of psychological profile on the killer, and I'll read to you what it says directly from a WRAL newsletter. It says, The suspect would likely be experiencing a great deal of stress, would be increasing any use of drugs, alcohol, or cigarettes, and would probably be taking an interest in news of the investigation. Bird, who was the sheriff at the time, believes that whoever did it is still within a 50-mile radius of Rayford. He hopes the person is remorseful and will turn himself in. And Bird says if the person does give himself up, he will personally pick him up and treat him with dignity. Bird also said investigators don't believe the killer acted out of anger. They said that while the girl was sexually assaulted before she was killed, her body was not mutilated. And personally, I think all of that is kind of BS. You kidnap, rape, and drown a child, and that's not anger? And that's not mutilation? To me, that does not add up. I definitely agree with you. I mean, the dignity part, it just doesn't sit right with me at all. Whoever killed Brittany deserved no shred of dignity, in my opinion. Um, You know, and would gladly tell Bird that to his face today. Facts. Yeah. Um, So one year into the investigation, with the case growing cold, a new sheriff, so goodbye Bird, um, named Jim Davis, was elected who promised to solve the case and bring Brittany's family justice. Rather than exploring the available leads, though, the new sheriff turned the investigation back to the family, particularly on Brittany's step-grandfather, James Candy Rose Stevens. Now, remember, eyewitnesses saw Brittany being abducted. Neighbors would very likely have been able to identify if the man who had taken Brittany was someone they had seen around before, especially her step-grandfather. Also, remember, he's the one who takes Connie to the school to see if Brittany was there. So it would have been very unlikely for him to have been able to abduct her and take her mom to the school. But this meant nothing to Jim Davis. He was relentless. He even went as far as showing the step-grandfather photos of Brittany's body in the medical examiner's room to try to force him into confessing. The police did not release any information on why they suspected James, but he was never arrested, so there likely is no evidence. Also, according to the Fall Line podcast, Davis even had Brittany's mother handcuffed, guys, handcuffed, and brought into the station, put crime tape around her trailer, and claimed to have found blood in her home, all in an effort to get her to confess. Which to me, it absolutely makes no sense. Multiple people saw Brittany being kidnapped by a man. So how could Connie have possibly harmed Brittany at all? So during his re-election campaign, the sheriff hosted a press conference without the family's knowledge on Brittany, but provided no new information. Brittany's mom showed up to the press conference anyway, and she was pissed, as you can imagine, um, and immediately walked out upon hearing no new information. As I would, too. Yes, exactly. Why hold a press conference so many years after a crime and provide no new information, Brittany? It makes no sense to me. She and the family believe it was a ploy to help his reelection campaign. But it did not work. So in 2002, a new sheriff was elected and a new suspect was brought in for questioning. So 44-year-old Keith Douglas Laundrie from Moore County, North Carolina, which was just the next county over from Hoke where Brittany lived, was brought in for questioning for her murder. At the time, Keith was already serving a sentence for bank robbery. 
When Keith was arrested, workers at the fire department, where he had been a firefighter since 1992, found a picture of Brittany in his locker. While I think having photos of a murdered five-year-old in your work locker is more than a little creepy, it makes me wonder if there was more information about Keith that was not released to the public. And I'm not sure of what he said about having this photo of Brittany or how he explained it, but when law enforcement tested Keith's DNA against the DNA found on Brittany, it was not a match. After four years, the family finally thought that they would get answers on who took their baby from them, but this was yet another dead end. Wow. You mentioned this was after a new sheriff was elected. Um, so that new sheriff actually was Hubert Peterkin, and he's still the current sheriff of Hope County to this day. Since then, there have been no other public announcements from local authorities or big breakthroughs on the case. Connie did mention that Sheriff Peterkin is in constant contact with the family to this day, and he created a task force for her case. Although we don't know details about how regularly they meet or how active the task force actually is. We know someone knows something, though. There are so many unanswered questions about this case for me. Um, and I don't know about you, Brittany, but it just leaves me feeling so frustrated. Definitely a frustrating feeling and one I'm sure her family feels every day. And I'm also wondering if advanced technology can do anything to advance the case. So they have the suspect's DNA, which is rare in a cold case, but I wonder if there's any way to conduct new tests or I wonder how often this DNA is ran in the system or if it has to even be ran multiple times. So also I've heard of many cases that have been solved using these new like genealogy systems like Ancestry.com or 23andMe and running the DNA through those servers and then getting a match based on that. I've seen a lot of different cases where they'll get a match back where it won't be the person who actually committed the crime, but it'll be maybe a first or second cousin and then they can trace it back to figure out who it is. Uh, from that information. And so I would be really interested to know if they were considering doing that for Brittany's case. And I think that especially as more people are submitting their DNA to those platforms, that that could be a really um, good way to potentially solve this crime. Yeah, that's a really good point. It seems to me that the man who did this either hasn't committed other crimes to have DNA in the system or has never left DNA at a crime scene again. Um, which is crazy to me to commit such a heinous crime and then to never do it again. It's It just seems so rare. Um, I mean, this is all speculation, but I would find it really hard to believe that Brittany is his only victim. It just seems too heinous of a crime. Yeah, I totally agree. And there is a $20,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of Brittany's killer. WRAL reported in 2006 that investigators have followed 17,600 leads in this case, and the SBI estimates that 92 agents have worked almost 9,100 hours in total to find Brittany's killer. When messaging her sister, we found out that the family still receives regular updates on the case, which is something that we mentioned earlier from Connie as well. In fact, just last year, her family was introduced to new detectives on the case as the previous detective had retired. Brittany's sister, Brianna, also said that there were leads discussed with the family that are still active, that they are not at liberty to discuss, and, and that are confidential between law enforcement and the family. Obviously, Brianna's childhood was deeply impacted by the death of her sister. She was only 18 months old at the time of her death. Her mom, Connie, mentioned that she wasn't allowed to ride the bus until high school, and she mentioned she kept Brianna out of kindergarten until the last two weeks of school because she was so afraid something was going to happen to her, too. 
Also, her grandfather taught her how to shoot a gun when she was just three years old. Brianna said growing up without her older sibling and basically being an only child was tough at times. I can't imagine the pressure and emotional trauma she would have had to endure as a child whose sister had been killed in such a tragic way. Brianna says she did suffer emotionally and has issues with anger and outbursts, but through counseling, she now has it under control. Her mom and dad also split up in 2005 due to the stress of losing Brittany and receiving no justice. The last thing we would like to add from Brianna is that she would like to remind you all that the case is open and will remain open until there is justice for Brittany. Not only has the family had to deal with the loss of Brittany for 22 years, but they've also had to deal with the rumors and gossip spread about the case, something that can be traumatizing for a family trying to heal and seek the truth. I think we should all be mindful in cases like this to especially remember that these are not just cases. These are our daughters and sisters and grandchildren. I read a quote from Brittany's mama in the Fable Observer that says she thinks about Brittany every day, all the time. So while this might be something you listen to on your morning commute or while you cook dinner, just remember that this is someone's 24-7 reality. There is no pause button or fast forward or rewind. Brittany would be 28 years old today had she not been abducted that January morning. Her 28th birthday was just a few days ago on October the 24th. And I remember when this happened, I was only seven years old. And I don't know about you, Chelsea, but it really scared me. I remember mostly learning about little girls who went missing, who were white, blonde, rich, and lived far away. Girls like JonBenet Ramsey. But Brittany was like me. She lived near me. We were pretty close in age. We had the same name. And I don't think it just scared me. It scared my whole family. So in the podcast, The Fall Line, Connie mentions writing to the show America's Most Wanted, which was a very popular show at the time, and asking them to cover Britney's case. But she got a letter back saying that they declined to cover her case. And she was just shocked by that because the host and the creator of the show, John Walsh, his little boy Adam was murdered in kind of a similar way to Britney. His mom was out shopping with him and they separated for a small time and then his body was later found. It took an extremely long time for them to solve his case, but you know, Brittany's case was still turned down for the show. And her mama also talks about how she couldn't get Brittany's case to be covered nationally either. It kind of stayed only within North Carolina. But when we think about cases like John Bonet or Adam Walsh or Madeline McCann or J.C. Dugard or Natalie Holloway or Kaylee Anthony or Elizabeth Smart, and I could go on, these cases consume our national media. When a white child gets murdered or goes missing, particularly if they are from an upper or middle class family, it's often national or international news. Laws get passed. Documentaries get made. Books get written. Think about the Amber Alert. That was the result of a white child named Amber Hagerman going missing and later being found murdered. But we have no laws for Native kids that get taken. There is no Britney's Law. There is a term that's used sometimes in journalism called missing white woman syndrome, which refers to the large amounts of media coverage that gets devoted to missing white girls or women. But we rarely, if ever, see this kind of coverage for Native women and girls. I can't think of a single case involving a missing or murdered Native woman or girl that was covered nationally. So the reality is that not as much attention or resources goes into solving cases of Native girls. But that does not mean that Brittany does not deserve justice. 
please contact the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation or the Hope County Sheriff's Department with any information that may be helpful so Brittany's killer can be brought to justice. We will link information to the case on our social media as well as on our website. Yes, please go to our social media and, you know, any information that you have, we'd love to um, hear from you. And as a reminder, our Native American girls are at the highest risk of any other racial group of being murdered or going missing. And it's also important to note that when Lumbee girls and women are missing or murdered because of our unique status with the federal government, we are rarely included in national statistics. And this is probably true for many state-recognized tribes across the country, which means the numbers are much higher than the data presented. The true number of missing and murdered Indigenous women is daunting, which is why we ask that you always protect them, always fight for them, and always try to keep them safe. Please tune in for our next episode, where we will cover the case of Neil Stonechild and the Saskatoon freezing deaths. Episodes will air every Monday. Sources for the show can be found on our website, redjusticepodcast.com. And please remember to follow us on social media at Red Justice Podcast for updates and resources. If you have a case you would like to see us cover, please feel free to reach out to us via social media or on our website. Thanks for tuning in.